Live from the WJFF studios in Liberty, New York, this is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. On today's show, the latest from Albany this morning, Democrats in the New York State Legislature say they hope to vote on the latest version of those new congressional district maps as early as today. Republicans who are in the minority party say the new lines favor Democrats. Karen DeWitt from the New York Public News Network will have the latest. We'll also hear from VoteBeat in Pennsylvania talking about elections there. We're talking about voting machines and voting elected officials who are leaving the area at an alarming rate. We'll speak to Carter Walker from VoteBeat for the latest there. And two years ago this week, the localized conflict that gave away to the Russian invasion of Ukraine occurred. We visit with Dr. Larissa Deriska, a Ukrainian-American residing in Sullivan County, with her thoughts. First, the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Former President Donald Trump and President Biden won their respective contests in yesterday's Michigan primaries. There was also a movement on the Democratic ballot to vote uncommitted. NPR's Elena Moore reports it was a statement against Biden's policies on the Israel-Hamas war, pushing him to call for a permanent ceasefire. Biden received 80 percent of the vote, but organizers pushing an uncommitted selection are calling their 100,000 votes a major victory. Looking at recent Michigan presidential primaries, it is common to have sometimes tens of thousands of uncommitted votes. Still, this primary was the first major test for how voter attitudes toward Biden's handling of Gaza could affect outcomes. On the Republican side, Trump's win is another warning sign for trailing candidate former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. That said, only a portion of delegates were attainable last night. The remaining majority will be allocated during the state's caucus-style convention this weekend. Elena Moore, NPR News, Detroit. President Biden is at Walter Reed Medical Center in suburban Washington, D.C. this morning getting his annual physical exam. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports there's heightened interest in what his medical report will say, given the president's age. At 81, President Biden is the oldest person to ever hold the office, and polling shows voters are concerned he is too old for a second term. That concern was amplified earlier this month by a special counsel report about Biden's handling of classified material. The report questioned the president's memory, but the White House and Biden himself have strongly pushed back against the narrative. Biden's past medical reports while in office did not include any references to tests or evaluations of his memory or cognition. The White House says they'll publicly release a summary of the president's medical report later today. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, Bethesda, Maryland. An enormous wildfire is burning in the Texas panhandle. The Smokehouse Creek Fire is the second largest wildfire in Texas's recorded history. It's burned more than 780 square miles. There have been evacuation orders. Stocks opened lower this morning as the Commerce Department reported slightly less rapid economic growth at the end of last year. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the Dow Jones Industrials fell nearly 200 points in early trading. Revised figures show the U.S. economy grew at an annual pace of 3.2 percent in the final months of 2023. That's fast, but not quite as fast as the 3.3 percent rate the government had initially reported. The downshift mostly reflects slower growth of inventories, which tell us little about the underlying economy. The new figures show consumer spending, which is the biggest driver of economic activity, was actually somewhat stronger in October. October, November, and December than had been reported. Starbucks has agreed to restart talks with a barista's labor union. Workers at 370 Starbucks stores have voted to unionize, but so far, none has been able to reach a collective bargaining agreement. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to NPR News.
Hunter Biden is on Capitol Hill this morning to face Republican lawmakers. NPR's Giles Snyder tells us it's part of the impeachment inquiry against his father. Hunter Biden is to meet behind closed doors with members of the House Oversight and Judiciary Committees looking into the Biden family's business dealings. He was first subpoenaed to appear in November, but he resisted, saying private testimony would allow House Republicans to cherry-pick his remarks. He appeared twice on Capitol Hill to protest, but following negotiations, he dropped his demand that his testimony be public. NPR's Giles Snyder reporting. The widow of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny addressed the European Union Parliament today. NPR's Rob Schmitz reports she's worried Russian President Vladimir Putin will order arrests during her husband's funeral in Moscow on Friday. Addressing hundreds of parliament members in Strasbourg, Yulia Navalnaya said she is not sure whether her husband's funeral will be peaceful or if police will arrest those who come to mourn the death of Alexei Navalny. The ceremony will take place in an Orthodox church in a residential area of the Russian capital. Navalnaya gave a stirring speech, calling for Putin to be held responsible for her husband's death. She said Putin should be treated not as a politician, but as a mafia crime boss, telling parliamentarians they could not hurt him with another set of sanctions. You are not dealing with a politician, she said, but with a monster. Rob Schmitz, NPR News. Berlin. There are reports of gunfire from the capital of the Central African nation of Chad today. The Chadian government insists the situation is under control. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities and the listeners who support this NPR station. Welcome back to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. As we've been reporting, Democrats who dominate the New York State Legislature have introduced new congressional maps they plan to pass this week. In fact, they plan to pass them as early as today. Republicans who are in the minority party say the new lines favor Democrats. From the New York Public News Network, Karen DeWitt reports from Albany this morning. Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty, following a closed-door meeting with his Democratic members, says lawmakers will vote as soon as Wednesday on the lines drawn by the Democratic majorities in his House and the state Senate. Democrats on Monday rejected maps approved by the state's bipartisan redistricting commission earlier in the month. Hasty says those maps needed revision. We saw that there were some places that people like to use the word defects, but we thought that there were areas that could be improved upon. Uh, And that's what we did. The speaker says he's requested what's known as a message of necessity from Governor Kathy Hochul to forego the three-day public aging process required for the legislation. The decision to alter the lines from the commission's recommendations could help influence which party controls the U.S. House of Representatives. In 2022, after lines drawn by the Democrats were rejected by the state's highest court for being unconstitutionally gerrymandered, a court-appointed special master drew the lines for that year's elections. Critics say that contributed to four seats flipping from Democrat to Republican and helped the GOP narrowly regain the House. 
The new lines could benefit Democratic incumbents Jamal Bowman in the Hudson Valley and Tom Swasey. He recently regained his Long Island-based seat after George Santos was expelled in late 2023. The new configuration could also potentially disadvantage Syracuse-area Republican Brandon Williams. His district would now include more Democratic-leaning voters. Speaker Hasty denies that they now favor Democrats. We are not allowed to draw lines with.、Uh, Political considerations in mind. Assembly Republican Minority Leader Will Barkley says the new lines most definitely do favor the other party. Yeah, without a doubt, I think the numbers would bear those out.、Uh, but it, we are in a blue state, and、um, you know, I think things could actually be worse. He says with Democrats in full control of the legislature, the lines could have been even more unfavorable to the GOP, and he predicted that some of his members will approve the new maps. Barkley and other Republicans say Democrats, though, are thwarting the will of the people by rejecting the bipartisan redistricting commission's maps, which that panel approved by a nine-to-one vote. The commission was created in a constitutional amendment that was approved by the voters in 2014. Governor Hochul defends the Democrats' decision to draw their own maps. She says the Constitution also allows the legislature to revise the lines if they're not satisfied with the commission's option. It is the prerogative of the legislature to vote yes or no, and if they vote no, they have an alternative. That's exactly what is allowed in the Constitution. So they're wrong in their assessment. Hochul, who spoke earlier in the day, did not rule out issuing a message of necessity to allow voting to begin early, saying she wants the lines to be in place as soon as possible. Petitioning for primary races has already begun. There's a sense of urgency around this. People are out there with their petitions already. So I'm anxious to have this、uh, chapter wrapped up as soon as possible. I believe the legislature wants this wrapped up、uh, within the next day or so.、Uh, so no, we're taking it very seriously. Whenever the vote is taken, it is not likely to be the end of the process. With the control of the House potentially at stake, it's expected that state GOP leaders will challenge the Democrats' newest lines in court. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt for the New York Public News Network. And here's a look at what would be changed locally by the legislature, according to Politico. The bipartisan commission had split Orange County, moving a portion of it from Representative Pat Ryan's district to the nearby one held by Republican Mark Molinaro. The legislature's lines would keep Orange County entirely in Ryan's district. Most of the other changes aren't different from the lines that were used in 2022. Most of the other changes to Ryan's district would involve swapping towns in Ulster County with Molinaro's seat. Ryan's seat would lose the blue-friendly towns of Marbletown and Rosendale and gain the blue-trending Saugerties and the deep blue Woodstock. Molinaro would gain the Republican-friendly town of Schwangunk and gain the Republican-friendly town of Ulster. The net result is that district, which was 54.2 percent for Biden in its iteration for the past two years and 55.7 percent in the plan drawn by the commission, would now be a district that gave Biden 54.6 percent of the vote. And Molinaro's district underwent the most significant changes, but even those didn't dramatically change the electoral math. According to Politico, in addition to the swaps, swaps of Ryan, with Ryan in Ulster County, Molinaro's district would drop Tioga County and parts of Cortland County to districts to his west. It would pick up parts of Rensselaer and Otsego counties,、uh, Otsego counties from Representative Elise Stefanik. Yet after all that, the numbers are basically the same. Molinaro won 2022 with a 52.3 percent、uh, result in the Biden district in this redistricting. Uh, from the legislature would be fifty-two point two percent.
We'll keep you posted. We're going to move from New York to Pennsylvania, but staying with election news, VoteBeat is a nonpartisan news organization covering local election administration and voting that partners with Spotlight PA. And investigative reporter Carter Walker has uncovered a pressing concern with Pennsylvania's electoral framework, the significant turnover of election officials. So many officials have left, in fact, that it adds up to a loss of nearly three centuries worth of cumulative expertise since 2019. We brought you his reporting before, but this is further research search, and the upheaval underscores potential vulnerabilities in the electoral accuracy, particularly in a swing state with the 2024 presidential race on the horizon. Jason Dole spoke with Vote Beats Carter Walker on the local edition. There's been a lot of conversation uh, since 2020 about election directors and election staff in general leaving their posts. Uh, you know, down in Virginia, we saw a whole county office leave. Uh, my colleague in Texas reported on a whole county office resigning. Uh, and people in Pennsylvania, you know, the story's been no different here. Uh, there's been a lot of folks re- leaving. But the conversation around it's really been very anecdotal. So what we wanted to do was get some data behind it and just get a handle on, okay, exactly how bad is the problem here in Pennsylvania and how bad has it gotten since 2020? So we reached out to all 67 counties and put a records request in with them uh, to see the years of service for their officials. And like you said, what we got back was that we've lost about three centuries worth of uh, experience. Wow. So so you wanted to know if this is just anecdotal or if it's real. I guess you found out that it's real. And is it more real than you even anticipated? I was expecting um, a high number just based on the conversations I've had with some directors here in the state. But I think even more significant than, than the three century figure is that 300 years represents one fifth of the total years of experience that we had in 2019 when we administered that year's election. Uh, and, you know, to, to lose one fifth of your one fifth of anything is pretty big, I think. Well, let's talk about where the, those years of experience lie, the, the roles that these people play. You're talking about uh, election officials. What, what kind of uh, office and capacity did they hold? And, and again, you're talking about how many years they served in those offices overseeing elections, correct? Yeah. So, in Pennsylvania, most people would be uh, familiar with this as the election director, uh, the person in their county who's running the election day to day. You know, they're they're purchasing equipment and ballot paper and saying, OK, we need to get these machines out to this precinct. So we asked every county uh, and a lot of counties have deputies that do that job as well. So we asked every county to give us the the salary and hiring and firing dates uh, for their director and their deputy director, whoever in their county was equivalent to that position. Um, so so we're not just talking about the staff that would work under them. We're talking about the people at the top of the office, which is, you know, really the most important role in the office because they're directing uh, how precincts get set up and what equipment goes where and who needs to get hired and what, what things need to be purchased at what time. Um, so they play a really important role in, in making sure the election actually happens. Right. And so once you identify, so you're mainly looking at election 
directors, once you identified that role and you looked at how folks are leaving, how, how did you measure the, the impact, the ramifications of this widespread loss of institutional knowledge? Well, the impact is pretty clear if you just look at some of the problems that we've had with our elections the past couple of years. Um, we had also done a story in December, I think, which we spoke to your listeners about, about ballot errors and administrative errors over the past couple of elections. And there have been just a, a very steep increase in, in ballot errors in Pennsylvania. And these are things like telling voters that they can vote for three commissioners instead of two commissioners, where if they did vote for three commissioners, then their entire ballot would be void because that's an overvote or uh, having the wrong return dates on a ballot. Um, and which, you know, could cause a, a voter to return it at the wrong time. And when you look at the counties where those errors are happening most frequently, it's also the counties where they are having the highest turnover. Uh, Green County has had a lot of turnover. I think they're on their sixth or seventh election director since 2019, uh, you know, which is a lot, a four-year period. And just last year they had three pretty major ballot errors uh right in a row in October. Uh, Luzerne County, of course, your listeners probably know about, had a very uh, infamous and widely publicized error in 2022 when they ran out of ballot paper. Uh, and the district attorney there who investigated that problem was pretty clear that the problem was that the election staff had just been turning over so much and nobody knew when to order the ballot paper. Oh my goodness. See, that, that was something that, that I remember we were doing live election night coverage that night and we were counting down to when polls close, uh, in New York when they close in Pennsylvania. And we, all of a sudden we had to say, well, except Luzerne County, we're going to be waiting later now because a judge had to rule that, uh, voting places stay open later just to make up for that mishap. So that, that's a real, real time impact, uh, on the electorate. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that that really does show perfectly how this isn't just a problem of it makes it more difficult to work in that office, but it, it has a downstream effect that can really be negative for voters when, when counties can't retain the folks um, that know how to do these things. And you mentioned there that, you know, that, that there was an investigation into that and, and that's pretty clear that there's a connection between the turnover and that mishap. Are, is there anybody commenting on, on these mistakes in light of the turnover? Is there anybody that talked to you about this and actually commented on it? Yeah. I mean, I, I've talked with the, um, Secretary of State about it. I've talked with some election directors. Uh, around the state about it, uh, and our former Secretary of State who oversaw the 2020 election, uh, Kathy Bookvar, and all of them are very clear on the fact that, yeah, this this turnover issue is a real problem. It's going to cause issues for us uh, in how we administer our elections and in, in these errors increasing. Um, Secretary Schmidt, our current Secretary of State, he said it was the one of the biggest dangers that our state faces. Um, so he's really not mincing words there on on how much of a problem he sees it as. Wow! And does there seem to be a level of concern there? I mean, where they they say that? I mean, that that sounds like they're concerned. Uh, are, are do you see things lining up? People stepping up to address this issue, or is it even possible to address a loss of institutional experience like this? Yeah, there is definitely. They are definitely trying to do what they can. I mean. Part of the problem is, 
you know, with a lot of election-related things in Pennsylvania, part of the problem, or, or not necessarily a problem, but just a challenge comes back to that we administer our, our elections separately in all 67 counties. It's 67 little elections going on all at the same time, which is similar to many states. I'm not sure about New York, but a lot of states do it that way as well. So, you know, hiring and retaining employees, that's a problem of each individual government. Uh, but trying to overcome this, you know, this real issue of the experience we're lacking now is something the Department of State is trying to address. They've been uh, instituting some new training programs for the new directors uh, that are coming in. And as part of that, they hired a election director who had worked for a couple of years in Montgomery County outside of Philadelphia, which is one of our larger counties. And she had some good experience and she's kind of uh, giving those new directors kind of some peer mentorship to let them know, okay, well, here's, here's how you do some of these more technical aspects of the election. The Department of State also created a calendar of sorts of, okay, this is, when you need to be proofing your ballots, and this is when you should be ordering your paper. Uh, and they're trying to, as much as they can, bring some uniformity to the things that they do have control over and the things that uh, are, same, are the same across counties. Uh, but, you know, just the, the overarching problem, which no county or the Secretary of State's office could ever solve on its own, uh, is just that these election directors become a very, you know, not, as one former election director described it to me when he left his job, he just said it, it, it's not fun anymore. Um, it's become very stressful. You know, they get threats, they get harassment, they are um, questioned with, with almost every decision they make, which, you know, for a person who is just trying to do their job does not make it a very a uh, pleasing environment to do your job in and come into work every day, nine to five. Uh, and I'm not really sure how, you know, the Department of State or a county could address that. That's really just more of a cultural problem that we're living through right now. And that's something that, that I was interested in seeing, that you're counting this loss of experience and, and a number of these directors stepping down. You're charting that since 2019. 2020 was the last time there's a big national election, a presidential election year uh, in Pennsylvania. And that was a year where not just folks living in the Commonwealth, uh, but people around the country were watching Pennsylvania and were watching closely how the elections were being uh, run in Pennsylvania, as well as what the results would be. The eyes of the nation were on Pennsylvania. Uh, is that part of the impact that you're seeing? Is that part of why it's not fun anymore? Yeah, I think definitely. And, you know, we, as you pointed out, we started collecting our data in 2019 because that was uh, the year when we, before we saw a big change to our mail-in balloting system that increased the stress level and it was before election directors really started to face this uh, onslaught of attacks and harassment. And uh, it, if you look more detailed down into the data set I have of, of all of them leaving, you can see um, a ton of them just started leaving in 2020. And, and that's where I, I spoke to Kathy Bookbar, the, who was the Secretary of State at that time. Uh, and she told me, yeah, so it was, a, it was a very stressful year for them. Uh, you know, not only were the eyes of the nation on them, but... Uh, they were getting questioned throughout the entire year on top of having to deal with some, one of the biggest changes to our election laws 
uh, in a generation. And so that just, it, it made it a stressful environment for them that a lot of them uh, did not want to continue through. And, and that trend of them, you know, succumbing to that stress has really not abated very much since then. And just, just a reminder, like those changes to the election law, those were primarily to address the pandemic or, or am I mistaken in that? Actually, yeah, it was, it came before the pandemic. Uh, in 2019, the legislature passed a law to eliminate the need for providing an excuse to get a mail-in ballot. Previously, you had to say, well, I'm out of town or I'm sick or something. Uh, that's why I can't make it to my polling place. But they passed a law that that was no longer needed for, and that went in, that was passed in 2019, but the first year it was in effect was 2020, you know. So it, it, People weren't expecting it to be as big of a deal as it ended up being because obviously the pandemic uh, made it just a lot more convenient and safe to vote at home. With the increased amount of uh, and and forgive me, I know Pennsylvania calls them something different than they do in New York, so I don't use the wrong term. But there, there's mail-in ballots um, with the increased amount of those. Uh, at least one election commissioner I talked to in Pennsylvania in recent years, you know, said that their job would be easier uh, at election time if they were able to start counting those. They're not allowed to count them in, until uh, live voting is done. Is that a, a, a possible solution or a possible factor that could play into this? Has anybody mentioned that to you? Yes. I mean, election election directors, um, voting rights advocates, good government advocates, uh, lobbyists for county governments ac across the board and, and in a bipartisan manner, folks are uniform in, in saying exactly what you've just said, that part of the problem that makes this mail-in balloting system more stressful is that they can't begin opening those ballots and counting them before Election Day, uh, which is part of the reason we had uh, results delivered late in 2020 because counties were still counting those mail ballots in the days after the election. You know, election directors have learned and gotten some financial support from the state now to deal with those mail-in ballots, just make it go a little bit faster. Uh, but still, they can't start it before 8 a.m. on Election Day. And if they have a lot of mail-in ballots this year, again, it could be a possibility that they don't finish on Election Day and they have to keep going through the night and into the next day. Uh, so it's something that they very much want to see changed. Uh, the prospects on it actually being changed before the election uh, seem slim to none. Uh, there were some attempts in this past year in the current legislative session, but none of those were successful. And earlier you, you talked about uh, how election officials remaining on the ground as well as officials in Harrisburg, Secretary of State, uh, what they're trying to do to uh, relieve this situation, help fix this problem. Are you hearing from, uh, and the suggestion you just mentioned there, there's people that are even outside of the system making those recommendations. Are you hearing from other like non-governmental entities, people that have an interest in elections? Are they making any other suggestions to address some of the problems you've been looking into? Yeah, um, there is one other thing that has been getting talked about, uh, you know, whether or not anything will be done on it. Again, open question. But in the past couple of years, we've seen a lot of uh, recount petitions getting filed with counties. Uh, in 2022, this was a particular problem. There's a lot of recount petitions in the governor's race, uh, and that did delay 
the certification of of the election that year. Uh, and these recount petitions are, are fairly easy to get. It only takes uh, three voters uh, claiming that they believe that there was fraud or error in the election and $50 to get a recount. Uh, and good government advocates that I've spoken with and, you know, election advocates and directors kind of say, well, you know, we, we believe that there needs to be a mechanism for folks to object to results when they see them. Um, but this standard is too low. Uh, and in fact, in a story that we wrote uh, a year or so ago, we pointed out that the $50 threshold for getting that uh, recount petition was set in 1920, 22. And the equivalent of that is about $850, $900 now. Um, so it, it obviously originally wasn't intended to be such a low barrier. And so that's something else that I think election directors would like to see to make their job a little easier. Uh, but again, whether or not anything gets done on that this year or or even beyond that is remains to be seen. And throughout this whole conversation, you've been talking about various impacts that this situation will will have on elections, has had on elections, may have this year, a big election year, 2024 presidential uh, ballot year. Um, as you look at this after talking to everybody, what, what other implications might this turnover rate of election officials have for the integrity and smooth execution of this year's election? I think the the real danger in it is if if there is some kind of minor error that gets caused just because, you know, and, and no disparagement here, just because an election director, frankly, doesn't know what they're doing or doesn't know better or just because the law is complicated and they make some kind of mistake, like we saw in North Hampton County uh, this past election where there was a an error that occurred with their machines and made it appear as if votes were being flipped. If that happens in 2022, when the eyes of the nation are again upon us, like they were in 2020, it's just going to be amplified all that much more. And as the secretary of state put it, um, bad actors are going to take advantage of the smallest human errors and blow them out of proportion to call the results and the integrity of our elections into question. And, and I think that's why people are really concerned about this, not because those errors really have a material impact on the results. Generally, they don't, but just because of how those errors will be perceived. Right. And making the case that people's perception of the electoral process is just as important as their actual on the ground experience with the electoral process. Uh, with that in the, and we've only got about a minute for this, if you don't mind, you have another story came out just this week. Everything you need to know about Pennsylvania's voting machines, how the state keeps them secure and more. And the subhead explains that political candidates have spread false claims about Pennsylvania's voting machines, uh, in part to undermine trust, which is similar to what you were just talking about there. Uh, in the last minute here, Carter, do you want to give people an idea of what's uh, in this, everything that they need to know about voting machines? What should people know? Yeah, this is part of the series we're trying to do ahead of the election with our partner Spotlight PA uh, that is just going to take a look at all the election uh, parts of the election and try and demystify them for voters. And the thing folks should know about elect uh, voting machines that we try and convey in here is just the level of scrutiny that they go through before they ever interact with a voter at a precinct. Uh, they go through two layers of testing before they can even be purchased by a county, and then a layer of testing before each election to try and make sure that they're secure and accurate and performing 
uh, as they should be. Uh, so, yeah, I would definitely encourage folks if they have questions about voting machines or other aspects of the election to check out this story at VoteBeat or at Spotlight PA uh, and, and as well as the other ones we're going to have coming here soon. Well, Carter, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. Well, I want to thank you for looking into this, and then I want to thank you for sharing your time with us tonight to go over it all with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Jason Dole speaking to VoteBeat PA reporter Carter Walker. You can find his reporting at VoteBeat.org or at SpotlightPA.org. And we'll post it to our website, WJFFRadio.org. We'll take a break. And when we come back, local reaction to the war in Ukraine two years on. We visit with Dr. Laura Durska, Ukrainian-American living in Sullivan County, and her reflections on the ongoing conflict. We spoke to her two years ago when that invasion occurred, and we'll hear from her right after this break. This is Radio Catskill. Support for Radio Catskill comes from Farm Arts Collective, located on Willow West Organic Farm in Damascus, Pennsylvania. Farm Arts Collective's programs intersect the practices of farming, performance, food, and ecology. FarmArtsCollective.org From The Community Foundation of Orange and Sullivan A publicly supported philanthropic institution CFOSNY.org And from listeners like you who donate at WJFFRadio.org Last year, over 100,000 people died from drug overdoses driven by fentanyl And the fastest growing group is under 19 Fentanyl is the number one cause of overdose in Sullivan County whether you're a parent or an educator, you can have the right conversation now to potentially save a kid's life. Protect kids from the dangers of fentanyl. More information and resources at naturalhigh.org. Paid for by Catholic Charities of Orange, Sullivan, and Ulster. Next time on the Retro Cocktail Hour, we've got bongos, reeds, and brass. Also, the Tokyo Panorama Mambo Boys and the exotic sounds of Martin Denny. I'm Daryl Brogdon. Join us where the music's always shaken, not stirred. The Retro Cocktail Hour. Coming up tonight at 7 on Radio Catskill. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Russia's military assault on Ukraine began a decade ago when it occupied the southern peninsula of Crimea. A bloody invasion of eastern Ukraine, which involved active-duty Russian troops, the West says, followed. Two years ago this week, that localized conflict gave way to the full-scale invasion by Russia's armed forces that's shaken every corner of Ukraine. On this grim anniversary, we visit with Dr. Larissa Durska, a Ukrainian-American residing in Sullivan County, and she's also a retired pediatrician. Two years ago, we spoke to her about humanitarian aid efforts taking place locally. Now, with this conflict still unresolved and support for Ukraine at a critical juncture, concerns are growing about the long-term viability of this aid. 45% of Americans now think the U.S. is spending too much money helping Ukraine, according to an AP poll from November. Ukraine aid is especially unpopular among Republicans, 59% of whom say the U.S. had spent too much. Radio Catskills' Patricio Rubios recently spoke again with Dr. Durska to explore how this ongoing war has impacted her and her family over these two challenging years. It's been a hard two years, but it's also been a hard 10 years. If you recall, when we spoke the last time I, I uh, 
talked about my cousin who had been killed in that first year, a West Point graduate, so an American like me, and he was volunteering in Ukraine and was going through the process of developing Ukrainian citizenship, just was so dedicated to the democratic process in Ukraine, and he paid dearly for it. So we have traveled to Ukraine a good number of times for his funeral, for his memorial service. Uh, for the five-year anniversary, there was a museum exhibit uh, in Kyiv that documented the time that he spent in Ukraine. So we've been occupied with that. The other people in the family have stepped up as well. Um, there's a foundation that my cousins formed in his name, the Murkian Paslavsky Fund, and they were able to set up a wing of a rehab hospital in Lviv for the purposes of helping the soldiers who were coming back from the war. And this is that first part of the invasion that in the Bas area and Crimea that the Russians invaded 10 years ago. And now in this, in the last two years, we unfortunately have lost friends. We, the fellow that my cousin was actually shielding when the, the missile came over that hit him, he was shielding a friend and that friend has since died. There was a, a journalist who documented my cousin's journey, but so many, he talked about Ilovaisk in general, what happened when the Russians attacked the a column of people who were retreating. They were leaving the Ilovaisk area and the Russians attacked that co column. This was after my cousin had been killed. So it didn't directly affect us, but this journalist was there. And then when the Russia attacked in near Kyiv, he went to do investigative journalism and he was murdered. We've personally suffered the loss of people that we knew. My son has been to Ukraine a couple of times now to do surgery. He went a few months ago to Lviv and uh, the doctors who were working in hospitals all across Ukraine are being called to the front. So surgeries that need to be done on pediatric patients, they rely on the expertise, on the generosity, on the equipment that people in, in from the United States and other countries from the European Union have been providing. Thankfully, there is, people are not forgetting. Thank you for yeah, bringing you think, attention to it again. Patricia. You just brought up a good point that, that the doctors are being sent to the front line. So there is everyday life things that are still going on in the country and surgeries that had to be performed. So you're saying you, your son is one of those doctors who came in, stepped up and stepped in to help uh, that short gap that's been created for this war. So what are your thoughts on, on the current state discussions in the U.S. On, in Congress when it comes to support for Ukraine? There is there is some bipartisan support for Ukraine, but I've heard some Republicans express concerns on what the long-term sustainability of the support can look like. And and so I just want your thoughts about that. And, and it seems like talks have stalled somewhat as we're recording this on Monday. As talks have stalled on the support of Ukraine. just want to see what your thoughts on it. It's complex. Uh, we have some very strong support for the bill for Ukraine aid 
Um, it, uh, Congress is multi-layered and it's a, a complicated issue. Democratic caucus is definitely behind, uh, aiding Ukraine. There's no question about it. Numerous Congress and women and senators have been to Ukraine and they know what the situation is. A number of Republican senators and congressmen have also been to Ukraine and they are stalwart in their support of Ukraine and we thank them <laughs> for that support. But the leadership of the House, Speaker Johnson, and some of our congressmen in, even in New York State are not supporting it. And part of the reason that they're not supporting it is because they're towing the line that uh, a, a certain faction in, in Republican po politics is promoting, which is don't give them the aid. We should focus on the border. We can do both. <laughs> we, you, the United States can do both and they have been doing both, but aid to Ukraine is of absolute necessity. It's not going to last forever. Contrary to what some of these people are saying, it will not last forever because either Russia is going to get their, they're going to promote with their, with the, with the countries that support them. They're going to get that support and they will overrun Ukraine. And so many people, the country will die. Democracy will die. Other countries that are in the in, near sphere of Ukraine will be subject to recriminations and possible invasion. So that's one scenario if Ukraine does not get aid. Another scenario is U Ukraine will keep fighting. It will continue to weaken Russia, but it will take so much more time to do it. And why there's no, there is absolutely no reason to prolong this, the murder of Ukrainian civilians and the loss of Ukrainian military. There's so much that can be done if Ukraine is aided by not just the European Union, which is definitely stepping up because they feel the danger on their doorstep, but the United States really needs to step up to not provide the aid for political reasons is criminal. It's genocidal. It's something that the United States should not be playing games with. I know that the White House is very serious about supporting Ukraine. I just wish that my congressman would step up, Congressman Molinaro, and tell Johnson that he needs to put this bill to the, a vote on the floor of Congress. So Congressman Molinaro, I'm speaking to you specifically. Please ask Mr. Johnson, Speaker Johnson, to put this to a vote on the floor. It will pass. On the international support, uh, how do you think the international support for Ukraine involved over these two years? And how do you think that sort of impacted what's happening on the ground? The support from the European Union, from all of the countries that have now joined NATO and are part of the European Union, has been tremendous. The United Kingdom separately has stepped up. 
the countries of the Balkan countries, they're sending their own F-16s. They have F-16s in their squads. And Denmark, for example, is sending all of its F-16s to help the Ukrainian um, Air Force. United States, where are you? They feel the pressure, especially the countries that are the Baltic countries, the Balkan countries. They all are in close proximity. Even Hungary, which just now agreed to let Sweden become part of NATO. These are things that they'll resist for a, a while. They'll, they'll grandstand, but when they understand how it's going to impact them in the near term, they do um, agree to do the right thing. Now, in the United States, these long-range missiles, if Russia decides that it's going to get even more out of control, the weapons that they have can easily reach the United States. If we're talking about a doomsday scenario, the United States is not immune. Plus, everything is global now. We're a part of, we are part in our economy, in our trade routes, in our culture, even in tourism. There's so many aspects of United States citizens being global citizens already that to be so limited in your worldview to say that we are just going to pr pr stay in our little corner and just think about the Mexican border is very provincial. It's something that is really hard to understand, but it's the mentality of a, a small group and Unfortunately, they're playing politics with this. When the invasion first broke out, there was a lot of humanitarian efforts here locally <laughs> happening, supporting the, the efforts that was going on in Ukraine. Can you give us an update on that, of where we are as far as humanitarian efforts here locally that are happening, that could be happening that we may not be aware of? I want to bring up one, one organ, well, two organizations. One is the Ukrainian National Women's League of America, of which I'm a member, and they continue to do wonderful work, humanitarian work, supporting to the children, re the return of children who have been abducted, providing still first aid kits, the individual first aid kits that, that every organization, the scout, anybody who collects for anything, provide these kits for the soldiers, which the kinds of injuries that, that they sustain out in the field have been life-saving. There are also slightly larger field hospitals that need to be supported that some of these organizations provide. But another organization I want to mention is Razum for Ukraine, R-A-Z-O-M for Ukraine. Just yesterday, I contacted my Congress, my Congressman Molinaro, and my senators to assure that they provide aid to Ukraine in Congress, through Congress. They're doing that sort of outreach, which is very important. It's a phone call or it's an email that you can just write by going to their website. They also collect donations. They have done a tremendous amount of work. One of my colleagues made a large donation to them after I had made a request for supporting Ukraine. I'm so thrilled. People will step up. People are 
supporting Ukraine still. Just looking back in the past two years, what lessons do you think the international community and us here locally could take away from the Ukraine conflict, especially in terms of security, diplomacy, and support for democratic institutions like that? I think that one of the things that we in the United States have been lacking is the education, world history, world geography, world civics, global civics. Unfortunately, I think that schools in the United States don't educate enough about the world. So that would be something that the educational system really could benefit from is a tweak in their curriculum. They're, they do a very good job for sure, but that the curriculum could include more about the globe, world history, world geography, culture. So that's at the very basic level. And then I just, I'm very thrilled with some of our Congress, people like Pat Ryan, who is a congressman from the 18th Congressional District. He's a West Point graduate as well. He represents that area now in Congress. He is just so well educated, so well versed in what is happening in the world. He's, he volunteered quite a bit in places like in the, in the East and, or served, I should say. He did a couple of tours of duty there. So our military. I any military people that I have spoken to are very well versed in what is needed for Ukraine. And not just if you're a general being one of the spokespeople on TV. This I'm talking about run of the average soldiers understand what is happening in that part of the world. So listen more to our military because they understand the situation and they would say help Ukraine. Something else that I've uh, noticed is how giving the people in Europe are in supporting refugees. It hasn't been easy or smooth for them either because they've accepted so many refugees, but they're still socially supporting them, offering them jobs, United States, I have to say that there was a program for the refugees so that they could obtain work visas on a shortened span of time. So the United States has helped with that. Wherever they can, they have helped. But this one roadblock in Congress is just beyond the pale. Where do we go from here? I remember this one of the questions I asked you last time is, where do we go from here? And you, at that time, you were, obviously still are. Okay. Strong support that America needed to step up more and set up not only just financial support, but also military support and, and, and planes and things like that. So I ask you again, where do we go from here? One time, one of our conversations, I had mentioned that there, um, that, uh, my cousin wasn't the only military type person who has volunteered, uh, in the military in Ukraine for that, um, international force. As we've heard now, there have been quite a, quite a few. I'm not suggesting people en masse go to volunteer in, to the military, but that is an option. And again, thank goodness for the military men and women in the United States who understand the situation. We can continue supporting financially with the donations through organizations like the Ukrainian National Women's League of America, 
and Razom for Ukraine. And finally, to tell your Congress members that this is very important for our democracy to support the democracy in Ukraine in order to allow our democracy to flourish. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Larissa Jessica, for talking to us. Let us know about your experience. I really appreciate it. Thank you for taking your time and, and telling your story again of uh, what's happening in Ukraine uh, and how it's affecting you personally and what's happening with your family there in back home. Thank you, Patricio. For Radio Catskill, I'm Patricio Robayo. And an update on aid to Ukraine, uh, NPR reports that congressional leaders emerged from an Oval Office meeting yesterday saying they were optimistic they could reach a deal before Friday's deadline to avert a partial government shutdown. But the leaders appeared to remain divided on Ukraine funding, with House Speaker Mike Johnson insisting that addressing the situation at the border needed to be the top priority. And uh, two organizations that Dr. Dreska mentioned in that interview with Patricio, the Ukrainian National Women's League of America. There's information at unwla.org. And Razom for Ukraine, that's R-A-Z-O-M for Ukraine.org. We'll take a break. And when we come back, a young race car driver from Ellenville is seeing early career success. And by early, we mean really early. He's only 13. This is Radio Chatskill. Thank you for all the ways you help WJFF Radio Catskill. Your support sustains the news, music, and local voices that make up WJFF. It's only possible because of your generosity. Help keep it going. Consider signing up to be a sound supporter to make sure Radio Catskill has your constant support. Go to WJFFradio.org. And thank you for supporting public radio in the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Hi, this is Marco Werman, host of The World. We bring you international perspectives on issues worldwide and here in the U.S. Our reporters in the Americas, Africa, Europe, and Asia get to the heart of the day's news. Afternoons at 3 on Radio Catskill. Welcome back to Radio Catskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Brock Pankeris is a 13-year-old race car driver from Ellenville, New York. Even though he's racing against competitors who are in their 30s and 40s, Brock has done more than hold his own. He hopes that this is the beginning of a long career that one day leads him to winning the Daytona 500. Radio Catskill reporter Marin Scotton spoke to Brock about his success on the track. For nearly half of his life, Brock Pinkeris has been racing cars. Born and raised in Ellenville, Pinkeris started racing slingshots, which are three-wheeled vehicles, when he was just six years old. Since then, he's worked his way up the ranks. From the beginning, racing has been a family affair for Pinkeris. His parents, Paul and Jennifer, support him wholeheartedly in pursuit of his dream to become a NASCAR driver. Um, it means a lot. Um, they help me out a lot. I mean, it's they probably they're my biggest sponsor on my car, my family, and uh, they pay for everything. They do everything for me, and uh, I really appreciate it. Now 13 years old, Pinkeris, who is known on the track as Bam Bam, drives crate-late models on dirt tracks. He's racing against drivers nearly double his age, and winning, too. Um, when I sit in the lineup, I, I, I mean, I don't worry about it. I just, you know, like, dang, like, I'm, like, only 13 and racing against, like, 40 olds and 30 olds. Um, 
So I do think about a little bit, but it doesn't affect me when I'm racing. In January, Pinkris hit a peak moment in his career, winning the Dirt Car Sunshine Nationals at Volusia Speedway Park in Barberville, Florida. An exciting feat for any driver, let alone the youngest one there. All the way from Ellenville, New York. Break out the stick. It's Bam Bam winning at Volusia. Man, it's a dream come true. Uh, I didn't think ever in my life I would be here doing this right now. Thank you, guys. It's definitely uh, a hard, it's really hard to win there in Malaysia because there's so, so much good competition. And um, you're, you're racing against the best people in almost the whole entire world. So, um, but yeah, it was, it was really uh, surreal when I won Malaysia. Going forward, Pinkerus has big dreams, but he's not finished racing on the dirt just yet. Um, I'm racing the Rush Series uh, Tour. Um, we didn't the same deal last year, um, and I'm hoping we can do a little bit better this year and hopefully pick off a couple wins and uh, championship. Some of my goals are you know, to um, make it to NASCAR and you know win Daytona. Um, but you know I I love my deal right now. I love doing dirt racing. Um, maybe pick up a Lucas Oil Championship or word outlaws um so i definitely uh see myself hopefully doing that and uh, hopefully i can stick with it that was brock pinkris an up-and-coming race car driver from ellenville new york in liberty i'm marin scotton for radio catskill go brock go uh and like any good upcoming race car driver brock has his own website you can learn more about him at brock p-i-n-k-e-r-o-u-s We'll be keeping an eye on that guy from our area. Uh, that's all for this edition of Radio Chat Skill. Uh, tomorrow, we have some winter tips for your pets. Yes, I know, unseasonable weather today at a high near 60, but we're going down to the lower 20s tonight and tomorrow. We'll learn how to keep your pets safe in winter weather tomorrow. That's all for this edition of Radio Chat Skill. I'm Tim Bruno. Thanks for listening. Support for Radio Cat Skill comes from Farm Arts Collective. Located on Willow Wisp Organic Farm in Damascus, Pennsylvania, Farm Arts Collective's programs intersect the practices of farming, performance, food, and ecology. FarmArtsCollective.org From the Community Foundation of Orange and Sullivan, a publicly supported philanthropic institution, CFOSNY.org And from listeners like you, who donate at WJFFRadio.org I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, host of On Point. Each hour of On Point is a journey to help make complicated issues understandable. Every issue brings more questions, like how did we get here? Why is this happening? And what does it mean? And how do we fix it? So let's figure this out and make sense of the world together. Join me weekday mornings at 11 here on Radio Catskill. On the next Radio Lab, we step inside the theater of the mind. A conversation with David Byrne. Yes, the David Byrne. What are, are we seeing things different? About how our minds... Are we tasting things different? Make up our minds. What else that we don't even know about? The theater of David Byrne's mind. That's on the next Radio Lab. This afternoon at 1 on Radio Catskill. You're listening to Radio Catskill Local News, Culture, and NPR.
The forecast today, rain and thunderstorms possible this afternoon. High near 60. Chance of rain 100%. Coming partly cloudy after some evening wind and rain tonight. Wind gusts could get up to over 40 miles an hour. Low tonight, 23. Tomorrow, not as warm. In fact, only a high of 34 with a few flurries or snow showers possible. And tomorrow night, clear, low 23. On Point is coming up next, and it's Radio Lab at 1. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. This is Radio Catskill. Public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Listen local. 